The recordings played on the boombox were loaned for the purposes of promotion only and remain the property of their respective record labels, composers, and writers. Boombox is a memory jogger for the baby boomers. That warm glow of the first time is a continuous memory for us baby boomers. We were the first to hear the Beatles for the first time. We were the first to grow up under the bomb. The first moon landing took place on our watch. We were the Woodstock generation, the largest voting demographic in history the biggest tax base in the world. The boomers ushered in interstellar traffic. The personal computer, color TV, cable TV, FM radio, and the internet. We are the parents of the handheld, satellite-fed, wireless generation. I'm your host, Joseph Dean Coburn, and this is The Boombox. Turn it up. Ground control to Major Tom Ground control to Major Tom Take your protein pills and put your helmet on Ground control to Major Tom Sing countdown engines on Check ignition and may God's love be with you
bags last night pre-flight Zero hour, 9 a.m. And I'm gonna be high as a kite by then I miss the earth so much I miss my wife It's lonely out in space On such a timeless flight
suborbital flight. Elapsed time, 15 minutes. In July, Gus Grissom went downrange for 16 minutes and almost drowned when his mercury capsule flooded and sank. Then on August 6, 1961, German Titov stayed in orbit for 25 hours and 18 minutes, and the United States still was without orbital capability. Have a blinking high level light. You are go. Order Finally, on February 20th, 1962, John Glenn rode an improvised Mercury Atlas vehicle down the Caribbean range and into Earth orbit. Mercury umbilical clear. Mercury is Partly because of ten postponements, partly because of the Glenn personality, that flight remains one of the most electric. Good Lord, ride all the way. Godspeed, John Glenn. Three, two, one, zero. Roger, the clock is operating. We're underway.
Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Capsule is turning around. Oh, that view is tremendous. Roger, turnaround has started. Capsule turning around, and I could see the booster during turnaround just a couple of hundred yards behind me. It was beautiful. If Kennedy, with constant urging from Vice President Johnson, seemed preoccupied with the race to the moon, he was equally concerned with the arms race, believing that by 1970 there would be ten nuclear powers. This is the Boombox Show.
program that never crashes. The Boombox.
Bill Dickinson was my BFF, my best friend forever. Bill has passed away now, a lifetime of alcoholic drinking having taken its predictable toll. Why did Phil drink if the outcome was so predictable? I sometimes tell my students in their acting classes, we're all damaged. That's why we prefer to spend our time in imaginary circumstances. Well, Phil had every need to drown and silence his memories. Phil and I met at the age of four when we attended the same tap dance classes in our hometown, Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. We had a recital in the gymnasium of the local junior college, which my recollection calls stunning. I'm sure any group of four-year-olds tapping across the basketball court in any small town in America would be equally revered. Phil and I were in the same kindergarten class and most of the same classes through high school. The first day of the third grade, we were so happy to see one another after a whole preceding summer apart. After school, we went to Phil's home on my bike. Phil, seated on the handlebars, clenching the hubs of the front wheel with his toes and the handlebars with his hands, was late in cautioning me that a fence had been erected in his backyard during the summer, so we hit the fence fairly hard. That got us giggling and I recall noticing that one of Phil's teeth was broken. It was a clean diagonal break from the corner of the front tooth to the gum. And I asked him how he broke it. Ah, my dad threw an axe at me, he resigned. His tone was so matter-of-fact that it struck me as some absurd dry humor at which I laughed out loud. Then I noticed Phil wasn't laughing. Many kids get broken bones when they're young. I broke my foot once and had a cast that featured the signatures of all my buddies. Phil always seemed to have a cast on an arm. Later, while speaking casually with a neighbor of Phil's, a classmate named Tom, they began to talk about when the beatings start. They were so relaxed and spoke with such candor about something so horrific to me. My grandfather raised welts on my backside a couple of times for climbing on the roof of the playhouse, but my grandmother put a halt to that. Phil and Tom were talking about a matter of routine, like lunch or bath time. Evidently, the beatings would start just before or during dinner and would continue as punctuation between homework and TV time. Phil had an older sister and a brother and sister, both younger. They all spoke disgustedly, but with resignation to this condition of life. A day in school was salvation, my friends agreed. The worst trouble you could get in at school would net a couple of swats from a paddle that the principal kept in his drawer. Not much of a threat in my circle. As the smallest kid in school, shorter than many first graders, the cycle of abuse usually broke on my back. There was no place further to trickle down from me. I was an only child of a single parent. I was spoiled by my grandparents and my mother. I got everything I wanted. But more to the point, I was not beaten on a daily basis. So my best friend took it upon himself 
to school me. Evidently, there is no predictable trigger to fire off an episode of abuse. Try as one might, there never seems to be a correct behavior, a behavior that keeps one beatings free for any appreciable duration. Daily beatings are routine. Days with no beatings are rare. That was my lesson, as it was taught by my teachers, my friends, by their teachers, their fathers. I have almost no recollection of the physical torment Phil inflicted on me. I remember him choking me until another kid pointed out that I was, in fact, dying. At least that's what I'm told happened. I only know that he quit choking me, and I only know that because I'm still alive. Now, by the time the Beatles came around in 1963, we were 12 years old, and our characters were pretty much cemented in us. It was clear that both Phil and I were rebels, as were the boys with whom we associated. I don't know why some boys are drawn to trouble while others watch it go by, but we were targeted early on by trouble, Phil and I, and part of trouble came at a price. If you grew your hair too long, you would not be allowed in school or church. You'd be thrown out, a term I'd always associated with being discarded wasted, and then you'd have to go home, where you'd really get it. It was when we were 13 that Phil started to come to school with camel cuts. Now, if you've ever seen a camel, you know that its hair grows in clumps with bald patches and scars where hair will not grow back. And Well, after Phil's father had given him a quasi-routine haircut, there would be some resemblance to the camel in question. So... In 1966, my late best friend, Phil Dickinson, and I spent the summer living on Tubbs Hill near downtown Coeur d'Alene. Tubbs, as it's known locally, is a knoll about 400 feet high, situated on the north shore of the lake. There's a nice little two-mile hiking trail that winds around the hill adjacent to the shoreline, with spurs heading up and down all along the way. There's a wide creek to cross, boulders of basalt along the shoreline, ideal for diving. There's even a smattering of private beaches along the way, a couple of caves, just about anything a kid would want in the way of a forested playground. No shirt, no shoes, no problem in the city by the lake. There was one rule, uh, don't track in a bunch of sand for someone else to clean up. So a pair of cutoffs with your tighty whities peeking out over the top was plenty for us boys. Clothing was kept to a minimum, but before walking through the doorway of a business, there was a routine of rubbing bare feet against one's calves in order to clear any loose debris. In the summer, we kids were either swimming or riding our bikes to other places where we would go swimming. Hayden Lake, Fernand Lake, Coeur d'Alene Lake, Spokane River, all within biking distance. And I have indelible memories of the little bubbles squishing out of the wrinkles and creases in my wet cut-off jeans as I pumped my 26-inch Schwinn from one beach to another, the sun baking the trails, the streets, and my bare skin equally. Sometimes on arrival at a beach or from the end of a dock, we might just ride our bikes right into the water. The disdainful and time-consuming formality of parking being just too plebeian for young men of our caliber. Phil and I were 14 years old. Phil's older sister, who had just turned 16, had run away from home. There was some rumor between kids that you could legally run away at 16, and Phil's sister had hung on to life just for that birthday. 
She took immediate and full advantage of the law we imagined existed on the 16th anniversary of her birth and never came back. That left Phil as the eldest, which meant he would bear the brunt of his father's rage. So, for respite, for his sanity, to save his life, Phil and I camped out on tubs that summer. Prior to that summer, on most days, I'd show up at Phil's around dinner time, either preceding or just following the Beatons. We'd walk to the coffee shop where we'd meet up with the other members of our clique, a.k.a. the mob. One of our junior high teachers had named us as such, and the name had stuck. In school, we were defined less by who we were as individuals than we were by the group we represented. So, for ease of reference, the teachers called us the mob. We weren't the jocks or the nerds, and we were too cool to be popular. We smoked cigarettes and played in a band. We listened to the Stones, thank you, and the Doors. If we had a Beatles album among us, then one of us must have stolen it from a party we'd crashed. We wore clothes from a mail-order catalog called La Eleganza that featured all of the styles from Carnaby Street in London. Oh, we were double-breasted, hip-hugging, skip-whale, corduroy, bell-bottomed, and beetle-booted boys. There were three problems with dressing that way in North Idaho in the 60s. First and foremost, you were in North Idaho. It's cold, and it stays cold all winter, and a couple of months of fall and spring thrown in to remind you that it's cold. Fashionable clothing is not conducive to single-digit temperatures, or any temperature that starts with a minus sign. Second, you're in North Idaho, where couture is determined by occupation as either a lumberjack or a silver miner, and anything that looks different needs a haircut with a chainsaw, not figuratively. Third, you're still in North Idaho again, and you look ridiculous dressed that way. You'd look ridiculous dressed that way on Carnaby Street, thank you. And because of the way he was dressed, Phil would take a few thumps from the old man, Jerry, before he left the house. But with Phil out for the evening, his older sister gone, it meant that his little brother and sister took more than their fair share of the beatings. But what is fair about being beaten? Did they go from a fair one-fourth and escalate to an unfair half? Yes, I have guilt over Phil's siblings taking more because I got him out of there. We called Jerry Popeye because his forearms were absurdly large for human scale. Phil's mom, Joanne, suffered the worst of it. I'm sure that Joanne's fifth child, a little girl, was stillborn because husband Jerry beat the baby out of her. I remember a little white coffin. It's buried at Forest Cemetery over on Government Way. Baby girl Dickinson, it says on her gravestone. Only the family was in attendance for the services, but three or four of the mob looked out through the fence surrounding the grounds. We were ready in case Phil's dad decided to start punishing Joanne or the kids for the death of the baby. After dinner, Phil was safe, at least for the time being. The mob would gather nightly at the coffee shop at the Modern Drug Center. We would all become great proponents of modern drugs at one time or another in our lives. No connection. But there we could smoke and talk about what we'd be doing for the rest of our lives when we managed to get anywhere but Coeur d'Alene. We made strong talk about Vietnam, and through the sheer odds of the lottery, none of us was drafted. 
we all made the commitment at 14 to be in the music business for the rest of our lives. I was the only one who actually did. That summer, the summer of 1966, Phil and I lived in a small outcropping of rocks on the eastern edge of Tubbs. We were only a couple of blocks from Sanders Beach and maybe a couple hundred feet away from the home of a fellow mob member, a guy we called Mouse. His real name was Kevin Anderson, but from the first moment we saw him coming out of the lake water, looking for all the world like a drowned rat, his nose protruding over his buck teeth, well, he was Mouse. Mouse's dad worked for the city waterworks, and part of the deal was a free house next to the reservoir on tubs. He'd get really pissed when we'd break into the reservoir for a swim. It wasn't just the fact that we had a whole damn lake to swim in, thank you. That's not what got him so upset. It was because he'd have to drain the reservoir and refill it after our escapades. He suspected that we were the perpetrators, I'm sure, but there was no evidence, just some whispers and stifled laughter. Sanders Beach was nearly next door to Mouse's place. It was a smaller beach than City Beach, where all the tourists went, and it was not as clean, but it was a bit more private, so it was the beach of choice for the 14- and 15-year-old girls with their bikinis, golden hair, and tan lines. Now, Phil and I, living on the hill without parental supervision, were very, very attractive to the girls. Two or four of them would follow us to our campsite where we would giggle and tease and grope at crotches and budding breasts, away from the prying eyes of adults. Our mischief was gleeful and harmless, exploration merely. For some reason, I was funny that summer. I'd always tried too hard to be liked, and that was made clear by the litany of body vaudevillian jokes that had been handed down from my theatrical family. Mostly, my neediness was looked upon as obnoxious, but that summer, maybe because we were 14, all of my jokes seemed hysterically funny. During the day, from sunrise on, we were at the beach. In retrospect, it's strange that no one ever looked for us or reported us missing. We sure didn't tell our parents we'd be living on Tubbs Hill that summer. But no inquiry was ever made as to our whereabouts. In fact, I have no recollection of even being hungry. I don't remember eating, but I recall that one way to ease hunger pangs was to swallow a lot of Lake Coeur d'Alene. You only had to be careful not to drink some bit of oil that leaked from an outboard motor. Of course, Mom knew where I was at the theater most nights. Our local theater company was staging a melodrama on the pier over the lake that summer, and I was doing repertory theater, as I did every summer, starting at age seven. After the shows, though, I was gone. I'd meet up with Phil backstage, and we were off to whatever adventure was planned for the night. Usually, our late evening activities involved getting girls to sneak out for kissing practice. It was just what it sounds like. Practice. Nothing serious. After exhausting the girls with laughter and play, Phil and I would peruse the streets until the wee hours. We'd break into cars and steal cigarettes that had been left on the dashboards, and whatever else that hadn't been bolted down. We had all these trails and pathways around the city that allowed us to steer clear of the local constabulary. It was from one of those unlocked cars that I took possession of a transistor radio. It was a big battery-powered radio that took eight C-sized batteries, which necessitated the routine shoplifting of C-sized batteries 
This was a big 12-transistor radio with AM, FM, shortwave, and the weather band. We could listen to KNEW in Spokane and to a fellow who called himself Wolfman on a station in Mexico or somewhere. That's how we found Alan Zerba. Alan Zerba had a radio station. Alan Zerba lived up the street. Alan Zerba had a one-watt AM radio transmitter in his bedroom. A U.S. Army-designed antenna was strung between the house and a nearby tree, and on a skip, the signal could go six to ten miles. Now, Alan wasn't allowed to broadcast after sunset, and he was not permitted to sell advertising, but the FCC allowed him to stay on the air, and Phil and I became disc jockeys. And the three of us would stay on the air for four to ten hours at a stretch. We'd read the comics on the radio, play records, tell jokes, and I would do whole dramas enacting the voices and sound effects. I'd memorized all the Stan Freeberg radio shows from the late 50s and could recite them letter perfect, and it often regaled my sixth grade class with a recitation on show-and-tell days. Now, duplicating these shows on a real radio station elevated my commitment to their authenticity. I'd introduce the Zazaloff family of acrobats to our radio listeners as they heard the hoots and hoes in the background from Phil and Alan. I'd describe the construction of a human pyramid. Yes, acrobats on radio. Or we might stand around the microphone pounding our chests in order to make the sound of a helicopter that is flying over the famous swimming pool of the Hotel El Sodom, the Rancho Gamora's neighbor. There, in the pool, you could see the harpooning of a whale every day as part of the entertainment. Well, Alan and Phil became the wind blowing over the Himalayan mountains during an interview with the abominable snowman, and you get the idea. I spent 24 years in radio trying desperately to reproduce the feeling that we got playing radio that summer. The closest I ever came was in either creating commercials that captured the same sense of play that we had, or playing a record that we might have played at the time. I won awards in my career. I won ratings wars. I won ardent fans. But I never won a single moment as meaningful as those on Alan Serba's one-watt radio station in his bedroom in North Idaho, with he and my BFF, Phil. Since we lived in a tourist community, there were always activities for teens on summer nights. The slab near the entrance of the city park was determined to be a safe place for local and visiting teens to meet and carouse. The events were known as slab dances, and they were well attended. The slab itself was a huge piece of concrete, 16 inches thick, that accommodated four half-court basketball areas surrounded by a fence made of a logging chain. Put a band on one end and old Joe Whitley in the entrance to collect two dollars a head, and you had an enterprise. At the last slab dance of the summer, I had finally come into my own. A hint of a mustache had sprung up over summer, and there was muscle tone where there had previously only been gangly limb. After a long summer of swimming, hiking, and camping out, I was fit. It was a Saturday night, and I had a night off from the theater. 
I had not seen a barber, a shirt, or a shoe all summer. So my hair was long, wind-blown, and sun-bleached. My tan was perfect, and I could put out a cigarette with my bare foot. I showed up at the dance alone. It was already dark, and things were just starting to hop when I got there. I was very existential in those days, and was therefore convinced that if I wasn't there, the party didn't exist anyway. I wore a blue pinstriped muscle shirt and a pair of hip-hugger wide-whale cords of the same color. It all fit like a second skin, which was very cool at the time. Well, Pam, Debbie, Carla, I don't remember their names exactly. They took one look at me and got all squishy. They were quite literally hanging all over me by the time Phil showed up at the dance. I was feeling very secure about my immediate future as one of those sexually active teens we'd been warned so much about, but nothing happened. We danced outside the chain a little. Normally the mob stood round outside the chain smoking and saying awful things about the band. The last hour of the dances they'd open up the gates for free time, as was the custom then. And then we'd go inside where we would smoke and further humiliate the band. The music didn't seem to recognize the chain as a barrier, and neither did we, but by the end of the night, everyone just went home. School started a couple days later. Phil and I were back to living in our homes, wearing new shoes that hurt like hell, and new school clothes, a size or two too large, so we could grow into them. Clothes you were swimming in that you couldn't swim in, I mused. Phil and I spoke infrequently about that summer in the following years, but when we did, we both acknowledged that we'd never laughed so much or so hard before or since. I could look at Phil forever afterward and say, The Root! Whereupon he and I would burst out laughing and no one else on earth could laugh with us. We were the only two people who knew why that was funny. And now I'm alone in that. For Phil, that summer was the first time in his life that he'd not been beaten on a daily basis. Phil was this smart, beautiful kid with unruly curls that made him sleep with a nylon stocking over his head to straighten his hair. Phil was a young man who put his sister's mascara on the fuzz over his lip to try to grow up too fast. Phil was a guy who wanted to play basketball and guitar and see what he could get away with, with girls. We were on the threshold of our lives, on the brink of following our hearts instead of just the instructions. Most importantly, this vital period of growth, this pivotal moment in Phil's existence, was pain-free. The one person in whom he placed all his trust and love, to whom he turned for protection, was for the first time just a guy walking down the street, and not his abuser. As soon as Phil returned home, the abuse returned as well. He started taking it out on me again, just as he had our entire lives. My BFF was the living definition of the cycle of abuse. A year or so later, I casually mentioned the Beatons to a mother of a mutual friend. Well, she quickly attacked me for telling lies insisting that Phil's father, Jerry, would never raise a hand to those kids. I didn't argue. I didn't say another word. I'd seen the way adults act when you tell them the truth. It never works out. And we wonder why our kids lie to us. 
I guess she must have said something to Phil's mom because two days later Phil and his whole family moved out of the house, leaving Jerry alone. A couple of days after that, Jerry moved out of the house, and the family moved back in. And that's the way it stayed. The nightmare was over. Phil never hit me again.
Listen where you work. The Boombox. Even though General Motors Corporation has recalled half a million Vegas, the Nader organization says there's still trouble with Chevy's Vega. Washington correspondent Rich Adams went to Nader's Center for Automotive Safety and spoke with Lowell Dodge and Judy Lesser. Vega was advertised as using somewhere between 25 or 26, as getting 25 or 26 uh, miles to the gallon. We find that the range is probably closer to 10 to 18 miles, depending on city or highway driving. Another serious problem seems to be a very loud squealing in the brakes. And this is also related to a general configuration of brake problems, which are often among these uh, premature wear out of the brakes and sometimes without a previous warning to the driver, which is potentially very, very dangerous. A third problem that we've noticed is the tendency of the Vega to stall continually in traffic. Uh, in many cases, this has caused near accidents. In some cases, it has caused actual accidents and is also quite obviously a hazard. A fourth problem we've noticed is that the Vega tends to leak uh, water very, very heavily during rain, during snow, sometimes up to four inches, which can be very disconcerting to its drivers. And probably fifth, we would list the fact that the car has a tendency to surge forward or backward, depending on which direction one would be going, without depressing the accelerator. Uh, and this is clearly a serious problem and has caused accidents, and the driver loses control over the acceleration of the car. We've uh, talked at length to the workers who put the Vegas together. And we have found a rather distressing correlation between problems which they report in the fabrication plant and on the assembly line on the one hand and the complaints in the complaint letters on the other hand. And specifically at Lordstown, we're very distressed to learn that inspectors are forced by their foremen uh, to pass on or okay defective cars, uh, which the uh, foremen are anxious to get out uh, to keep up their production quotas. The inspectors are the ones who initially came to us complaining about uh, this problem of having to okay cars, which they regard in some cases as dangerous. Uh, we asked the workers in passing um, uh, how many of them drive Vegas. Their answer was about as many uh, as you can fit in a Vega. On the 3rd of July, in the middle of one of the heaviest road travel weekends in U.S. history, GM announced its recall of half a million Vegas because of rear axle trouble. Judy Lesser told Rich Adams about prior Vega recalls. One of these in 1971 and twice in 1972. Both of the 1972 recalls involved carburetor problems. In April, GM informed its owners that there, there was a carburetor muffler problem, that the carburetor might come loose, sending gas into the exhaust manifold and running the risk of blowing out the muffler and causing a fire. In May, they wrote to their owners again about a defective solenoid bracket, which, if it failed, might cause the throttle to jam open in a fast idle position, allowing the car to surge forward without the driver's control. We at the Center for Auto Safety, as well as many distressed Vega owners, have been upset that GM has done very little beyond writing these recall letters to their owners to ensure that the defects are corrected. <laughs> For a quick errand in the city, a bicycle often means the shortest distance between two points. And when you get where you're going, you know you won't have trouble parking. Bicycling is really doing something, something good. For the first time, you might notice that rustic old home on the corner, 
or the rustling of leaves as they gently change colors, or the smell of newly mown grass, or even the taste of fresh air. Those are the things you can do when you're bicycling. And those are some of the reasons why more and more people are doing things on a bicycle. It's light, clean, fresh, refreshing, natural. Like 7-Up, pure refreshment. So have a 7-Up, ride a bike, and see the light. Oh, uh, with it. Ernie, it's me, Bert. Would you open the door? I got the stuff. Um, who is it? Ernie, it's Bert. Will you open the door? I brought the stuff. Cut. Listen, Ernie, that big bird saw me coming over here. I got the stuff. Will you open the door? Who is it? It's Bert. Ernie, will you open the door? Oh, uh, Bert's not here right now. I'm... Ernie, I know Bert's not here. I am Bert. Will you open the door? I brought the stuff. Hey, Jack's Liquor Store. Jack's Liquor Store? That's right, pal. <laughs> you, you guys deliver? We deliver. You got any tequila? We have tequila. Tequila. Yeah. You yeah. got any quartz? Quartz. We have quartz. I don't, I, don't want, I don't want any quartz. All right, how much do you want? I want fifths. You want fifths. All right. Four fifths. Four fifths tequila? Four, four fifths tequila? Yeah. What do we got so far? <laughs> we got four fifths tequila. Make it better, make that five. Five fifths tequila. Five right. fifths tequila? Got that. You got scotch? We have scotch. We got many cinnamon. I think you're pardon? Four. Four. Four <laughs> fifths of scotch. Hello. So it's this, uh, four is this liquor store? That's right, pal. You listening to the Yellow Pages? Yes, we are listening to the Yellow Pages. How come you're listening to the taxidermy? <laughs> <laughs> That's impossible. Uh... What? I'm sorry, it was, it was what? It's impossible. Oh, I must have a couple of pages missing in my phone book. What have we got so far? Five-fifths tequila, five-fifths of scotch. You got any beer? We have beer. All right, okay. We have 16-ounce cans and 12-ounce cans. Okay. <laughs> well, how much do you want? This, uh, two cases. Two cases, all right, I've got that down, all right. Don't send any vermouth. All right, I won't send any vermouth. That makes my wife sick. <laughs> She's out of town, but I do it just in her memory. All right, okay. <laughs> we have we have five fifths tequila, five fifths of scotch, and two cases of beer, one case of sixteen ounce cans. You're just bring that right on up, right on up then. Huh? Uh, all right, where do you want me to deliver? Up to my house. What? Where do you live? Up on the north side. On the north side. Yeah. Whereabouts on the north side? Up there by the Japanese amusement park. <laughs> the Japanese amusement park. Right? Bambi the deer plays there. Is that right? Where Bambi goes, nothing grows. Right. <laughs> you still there? I'm here. All right, don't you have any address, any numbers or anything like that? Uh, do, oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Let's yeah. see. All right. Five. 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 Two. Two. Well, that's not my address. That's yeah, my that's order. That's the order. Yeah, that's what <laughs> I thought. You can find... I'll turn a big red light on. You'll you can't miss it. Red light on. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. There's a big statue of a Brindlegate Dane dog out front. You're not going to bite, is he? No, he's just a statue. Just a statue. Okay. <laughs> we got five-fifths tequila, five-fifths of scotch, two cases of beer, one case of 16-ounce cans. No vermouth. No vermouth. I wouldn't send vermouth. And one case of... That's quite an order. Are you having a party? Huh? Are you having a party? No. Uh, I'm just trying to work up the nerve to go to confession. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
Hi, this is Al Cooper. Among other things, do you know how much heroin costs in the street today? If you want to kill yourself, why don't you just smoke cigarettes? It's a lot cheaper. each other this morning for a reason thinking talking we've worked out our problems look like we should have better days in front just because 
because we took our time to think and talk for a much better understanding. Listen where you play. The Boombox. The first man in space, Yuri Gagarin, looked down from 198 miles and said, how beautiful it is, our Earth. The decade ended with spaceship Earth circling the sun every 365 days. But in these last 10 orbits, we had become acutely aware that we were voyagers on a rich but vulnerable planet with its own life support system. As Adley Stevenson in the final speech of his life observed. We travel together, passengers on a little spaceship, dependent on its vulnerable reserve of air and soil, all committed for our safety to its security and peace, preserved from annihilation 
only by the care, the work, and I will say the love that we give to our fragile craft. We find ourselves reaching with magnificent precision for the moon, but falling into raucous discord on Earth. Log of the Starship Enterprise, Stardate 5943.7. Captain Kirk, this is Lieutenant Uhura. Mr. Spock is ready to patch in. Go ahead, Mr. Spock. I'm on the surface of the destroyed barbarian planet now, Captain. Destroyed? What do you see, Mr. Spock? The surviving inhabitants are in a dreadful condition. It seems they can't control their limbs, and their minds are dull and useless. Fascinating. They seem to be in a state identical to that curious 20th century Earth disease called hard drug abuse. I suspect it has destroyed all meaningful life on this wretched planet. A tragic find, Mr. Spock. As a Vulcan, I find the need for hard drugs to be totally illogical. But as a half-human Spock, surely you can appreciate the suffering that hard drug abuse causes. We can only hope that other civilizations will not make the same mistake. Shoot them up, destiny. Bang, bang, shoot them up to the moon. Bang, bang, shoot them up. One, two, three. Send me real soon. I wanted to be a spaceman. I wanted to be it so bad. But now that I am a spaceman, I'd rather be back on the path. Hey, Mother Earth, would you bring me back down? Safely to see. Around and around and around and around. It's just a lot of lunacy. Safe on the ground 